0: This morning, would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word? We're going to be uh, considering Psalm 100. Psalm chapter 100. Let's begin reading and hearing God's Word together. Bless His name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we ask this morning that You would help us to not only hear with our ears these very words, but to rejoice in them by the work of Your grace from the bottom of our hearts. Lord, we need great help and not just obtaining and getting our hands around the truths about You, but we need the supernatural work of Your Spirit to cause those truths to further change us, to shape us, and as the psalm calls us, to, to respond in glad-hearted praise. So Father, help us to see not merely the obligation of the praise that You are due, but the great reason and the great hope that we have, the great reasoning that we have to lift our voices, to give our lives to You, that all the earth might sound forth with the praise that you are due. Lord, cause your word to be effective and fruitful in our church this morning. Cause it to not only fill our mouths with the, the songs and the hymns and the spiritual songs that we sing, but the very proclamation of the good news of the gospel into wherever you may send us or place us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. For the past 20 or so years, I've been highlighting and saving quotes and articles that I've found to be particularly helpful. While the method or the system that I've used has changed over the years as technology changes and what's made available to us changes, the purpose in doing that has not. It's a practice I learned from other pastors, thankfully, early on, in that observing that the value of reading is not merely the consumption of information. The great value and the enduring value in what we read is the ability to think about it, to digest it, and then to return to it at a later point that we might be helped or help someone else. Some of the articles or quotes that I've collected and organized are very old. Some are very recent that you'll just stumble across in daily reading. As I meditated on Psalm 100 this week, a particular article came to mind, and I had to do a search for it, thankfully. I found it. I was only three years old when it was written, but with all good writing, it outlives its contemporary environment. I eventually discovered it. It was an article that R.C. Sproul wrote in 1982, submitted it to Christianity Today, and it's entitled, Burning Hearts Are Not Nourished By Empty Heads. And if you read anything of R.C. Sproul, you can picture him, especially in this time period with big hair, wide lapels, chalk on his fingers, that burning hearts are not nourished by empty heads. And in the course of a few hundred words, he argues that we must have a passion for God. He, he, He admits that. But the burning heart that we ought to have for God comes through the intellect of the mind. Because he asked, how can we love a God that we don't understand? How can we worship the unknown God? Now, he's not arguing for intellectualism. He's not arguing for a purely academic faith, but he's arguing that we would see we're called to have heart and head. We're to have action and thought. Because God has given us a book to read. Truth. It's to, meant to be understood and digested, so then that our hearts, as he says, burn within us. I suppose I was reminded of this article this week, knowing that how many of us are instructed to say thank you. Some of you children have probably even heard that this past week. Now, what do you say? And you know you're supposed to say thank you, and you're welcome. Often, even this week, we all are mindful of that we are, Most likely going to gather with others on an entire day devoted to giving thanks. Some of us may even offer up prayers of thanks as we gather together. While all of that is true, my question for myself and for us is, have we made the connection between the reason for giving thanks and the heart that overflows with thanks? Are we going beyond merely the obligation to give thanks? And have we entered into the very motivation for why we might do so? Enter Psalm 100. The charge here is clear enough. It's a call to joyous thanksgiving. It is a call for all the earth to make a joyful noise. But maybe you already noticed as we just read through it, the emphasis of the psalm is not merely upon our obligation to give thanks unto God. Though that is... A given. The emphasis of Psalm 100 is our motivation for why we are to give thanks. It's the sort of heart that can't help but give thanks. It's the sort of, sort of heart that is overflowing with thanks and the shout of joy as they give their lives in gladness unto this God. Psalm 100, it shows us that the command to give praise, it's inescapable. It's the inescapable response to understanding what God has given. It's by considering God and his worth, his dealings with us, that true thanksgiving is cultivated. Notice how the psalm is organized if you look back at the five verses there. Notice there's this structure of a command that's given and then the reasons for it. Verses 1 through 2, they're filled with these commands to shout joyfully, to serve with gladness, to come before Him with singing. And then verse 3 gives us the reason. And then we come to verse 4, and we have more direct commands to enter His courts, to give thanks, to bless His name. And the reason is then followed in verse 5. Command and reason. So how might we as we're gathered here this morning, cultivate our hearts to overflow with thanksgiving. Psalm 100 is our help. Consider in two ways that we're helped. One, by considering His grace. And then secondly, because of the certainty of His goodness. Considering His grace and the certainty of His goodness. Consider his grace by looking back at verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It's he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So the call begins, and the psalm begins, with a broad call, a call for all the earth to make a joyful noise or a triumphant shout because of this God. This calling, it's not limited to a few people. It's not just the people around a particular table or within a particular country or even within a particular ethnicity. It is a global shout of praise. All the earth make a shout for joy unto the Lord. Typically, as you read your Bible, mortal men are fearful of coming into the presence of God. You think of those examples, even an angel, men fall down in fear. And yet this psalm instructs us to enter into the presence of God, not in fear, but in thanks. Think about how different this is to most of what we read in Scripture. If you've been with us, we've been working through the book of Exodus typically on the Sunday mornings. Moses himself, he meets this Lord of glory in Exodus chapter 3. The burning bush, the bush that is burning but not consumed. And God is very clear that, um, Moses, I am holy. Do not come any further. Later in the book of Exodus in chapter 33 and 34, Moses petitions the Lord to see his face. "I, I want to be in your presence. And God graciously says, Moses, you cannot see my face because no man can see my face and live, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hide you in the rock and I will cause my name to pass before you. In fact, much of the Old Testament, if you think about it, it's given to show the impossibility of a holy God dwelling with finite and sinful man apart from the mediation that God provides so that God can be with man. Apart from that mediation and provision that God makes, man is struck dead. And here, the charge of this psalm is to enter his presence with singing, with gladness, with great joy. So here's what this means. This is our first clue that the sort of thanksgiving that the psalmist has in mind has something to do with the provision that God makes so that his people can dwell with him. God is deserving of thanks by the very fact that he is God. But the emphasis of this psalm is pushing us beyond that fact to know, to reason, to think, to consider of who God is and yet what we're called to do here in Psalm 100. Now, what is the basis for such a joyful command of praise? Well, verse 3 tells us, look at it, we're to know something. No empty heads here. We are to know something. Straight away, we are told that this is not ignorant praise. This is not zeal without knowledge, but the sort of praise that's actually fueled by knowledge. We're not called to feel something, but rather we are called to express praise because we know something, and for good reason. How can we love what we do not understand? How can we worship the unknown God? Okay, well, what are we to know? Well, notice there's two truths that are laid right alongside each other in verse 3. We're told something of God and then something of ourselves. Know this because when you know this, it's going to fuel joyful praise that you will overflow with glad shouts of triumphant, victorious praise. What are these truths? The first truth is that he is God and he is creator. Know this. To know that the Lord is God is go back to go back really to a repeated emphasis that keeps coming up in the Old Testament. It has not simply to do with the existence of God, but it has something to do more with the substance of who this God is. Again, in Exodus, I can't get away from it, that you may know I am the Lord. Not just simply that there is a Lord, but that you might know who this Lord is. When God reveals Himself to Moses, He speaks of His holiness and reveals Himself as I am. Not I was. I hope to be. Eventually I may be. I am. He does not need any creature that He has made, nor does He derive glory from them. Because this God... Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Scripture. He alone is the source of all being. Everything is from Him and through Him and to Him. He is unchangeable. He is immense. He is eternal, incomprehensible. He is almighty. He is in every way infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, holy, free, and completely absolute. The Lord. He is God. And then you lay a song alongside that truth number two. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He places his hand upon us and he says, you're mine. You are mine. You belong to me. I am your God and you are my people. And in order to emphasize that wonderful comfort of such a statement of that language, we're given an image that helps draw this out even further. It's the image of sheep in a pasture. But not just any sheep. We're His sheep. and We're not just grazing in any pasture. We are in His pasture. That means we are fed only the best. We are given only what is good. And we are fed like well-cared-for sheep who... Graze in green meadows and who drink from still waters. Now, given what you know of your own heart, given what you know of human nature, given what you know of the testimony of Scripture, how can both of these things be true? That He is God, and where is people? Is there not a massive gap between those two statements of who God is and then what we've been given as his people? Because I read of his perfect goodness and wisdom, that he's just and holy in all of his ways. And yet I know my own heart. I know and see my own fickleness and my own unfaithfulness. And I read the scripture to further see the corruption of my own desires, my incessant pride and love of self and tendency to call goodness evil and to think things that are evil actually might be and should be desirable because they might actually be good. How on earth do we reconcile these two statements of verse 3? He is God. We are His people. Do you know this? Have you given... Time to consider this, to fix your gaze upon who this God is and then what he gives to sinners. Friends, the gap between God's worth and his dealings with us is precisely what the psalmist is calling us to consider. The gap in between who he is and what we have, he's saying, know this, consider this, reconcile these two truths. Because the sort of praise that he's calling forth is not ignorant praise, but it's the praise that is brought forth directly by meditating, reasoning, considering, and knowing something. The immense void between who God is and what he gives to his people is brought together only by one word. Grace. Do you know grace? Don't be content merely to know the word, as it were just some vocab word on a flashcard to memorize. Do you know it experientially? Have you meditated upon its great depths, thinking about its height, its breadth, its length? Study the immensity of God and all of His holiness and all of His perfections and give your mind to considering the sinfulness of sin, understanding the offense of transgression, the reality of sin's corruption, and then sit back and study this eternal chasm between all that God is and all that you are in your sin and know that it's only the grace of God given to us in Christ that could ever span that massive gap. Joy and gladness come by knowing the extent of his gracious dealings with us since he made us and we belong to him. And church, can I remind us that, that is good news that we as his people belong to him. We're his possession. But this is clarified and that we are the sheep of his pasture. We are his people. Now, both of these are images that drip with Old Testament significance and how they are filled out and explained to us. Think of the message of the book of, of Hosea. Have you read Hosea? Because of the rebellion and sinfulness of God's people, they are rebuked, they're disciplined, Reminded that they are undeserving of his mercy and unworthy to be called his people. Hosea proclaims this. But even in this discipline, God is gracious in that he says, I'm providing a door of hope. You're hearing all of this, but you are not hemmed in. There is a door of hope. Because the message of Hosea is while that is true, he says in chapter 2:23, I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he shall say, You are my God. And as we move on into the new covenant, this becomes even more explicit and more clear as we see this displayed in even greater wonder. Not only did God make us, but he bought us, redeeming us out of the bondage of sin and calling us into his own house. Because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. So to belong to God is good news. Because for God to say you are mine. Is the greatest expression of grace that you could ever know. Because your owner has sworn by the blood of his own son. That you belong to him and that you shall be sustained by him. And If you profess Christ but your lips are unmoved and your voice is largely silent in the singing of God's praise. And I would urge you to examine yourself. Have you tasted of this grace? Do you know of it? Not just the logical propositions, the doctrines or even the cross-references, but an experiential gladness. Because when the people of God taste and see this, they cannot but help to do exactly what the psalmist calls us to do. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve Him with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. It is by considering God's grace that we are cultivating a heart of praise and thankfulness. It's a joyful thing to be made and brought into be owned by God. It's the sort of joy that makes you want to shout to the earth. It's the sort of joy that makes you want to be willing to sacrifice so that every tribe and tongue and nation and people might hear this same good news. It's the same message that's actually been rousing men and women out of their particular comforts and thrusting them out into foreign lands because of the joyful noise of God's grace. Global praise exists because the good news really is this good. A heart of thankfulness is cultivated by considering His grace. But the psalm also teaches us that it's because of the certainty of His goodness, His grace, and His goodness. Look how this unfolds in verse 4 and 5. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. Four. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. Do You see how the second half of this psalm, it follows the same pattern as the first, a specific command to give thanks and then the reasoning for doing so. Verse 4, the explicit command. And then verse 5, the reason for doing so. And again, notice, the emphasis here is not simply on the worth of God, though we could preach a thousand sermons every day on that. The emphasis here is to draw near to God. We are to enter His gates. We are to come into His courts, His courts. And we are to bless His name. Now, you may remember in the Old Testament that the temple courts, they were marked off by these series of gates and courts court of the Gentiles, there's the court of the women. There's the outer courts, eventually the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. These gates are His gates. They're His courts. And in Revelation 21, we're told that nothing unclean will ever enter His gates. Nor anyone who does what is detestable, nor any falsehood, will come into his courts. And yet, the call of Psalm 100 is to enter these gates not with fear, not with shame, but with thanksgiving. We are to usher into his courts, not with weeping, but with sounds of praise and thanksgiving, blessing his name. Again, how could this be? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. You see, thanks and praise well up within us and flow forth from our mouths when we consider the certainty of His goodness towards us. Just think about this for a few moments and what this psalm teaches us about God's goodness. Consider the essence of His goodness. By that I mean... It says the Lord is good. Goodness is not an attribute that exists just in the universe and God says, I'm going to pull that off the shelf and I'm going to use that towards you. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. The Lord is good. Goodness is not a quality in God He is good by his nature. It's not a habit added to his essence, but it is his essence itself. Stephen Charnock writes that we should not think that he is God and then afterward good, but that he is as good as he is God. This means that the... Every act of God is nothing but the outpouring of his goodness. He can never do anything that contradicts his nature. He can never do anything then that contradicts goodness. Because it would be a contradiction of who he is. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God showed him his goodness. Isn't that interesting? And then He expands on that goodness when He passes before Him and He speaks His name. Mercy, grace, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and even in His justice, because that's that little last clause that sometimes we don't like to read, dealing with sin and transgression. No, 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 no. Even in His justice, He is good. For the Lord is good. Christian, all this means is that whatever circumstance we may be in, whatever trial, whatever affliction, whatever quandary, whatever difficulty that you're walking through, Christian, rest assured that it not only comes from the hand of God, but from His goodness. Because He is good. And He does good. That means that even in the most bitter afflictions, we can still say, he's merciful because I deserve far worse. That he leverages even this so that I might further reflect his image. He's humbled me so that I might trust him. This weakness is exposing his sufficiency, as I depend on him. That's why a Christian can be confident, even as we sang this morning, that whatever he does, that he is most certainly, that I'm anchored in in who he is. That whatever happens to me, I have this great clarity on, I may not understand the why, but I am absolutely certain on the fact of what it's not. And that it most certainly is goodness. Goodness. We cultivate hearts of thankfulness by fixing our minds on the truth of His goodness. But don't just stop at considering the essence of His goodness, that the Lord is good. We're to consider the experience of His goodness. This is given to us in the two parallel statements in the second half of verse 5. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. The experience... Of his goodness is without end. Think of these two terms steadfast love is a dear and precious term for God's people. It's understood as his loyal love, his mercy, but most fully as this covenant love. The sort of love that he extends not to deserving people, but to undeserving people. And the sort of love that he extends that it's not temporary or conditional, but eternal and unconditional. It's certain. It's unwavering. It's completely trustworthy. Because it's a love given as an expression of a promise. And it's not the sort of promise that endures for a decade. Or a century. Or a millennium. It's a sort of promise that endures forever because it's given from the expression of a God who is eternal. And because of who he is and because he is good, and when he conveys that to his people and says, my steadfast love is upon you, well, because it's his steadfast love, we are assured that it is an eternal steadfast love. It's a promise that will not be broken, that will never run out or fade or somehow at some point become conditional. It endures forever. Equally enduring is his faithfulness to all generations. When he says that he will surely blot out your sin, he will be faithful. When he says that he will make you clean, he will be faithful. When he says that he will surely provide for every need, he will be faithful to all generations. And when he says that our afflictions are not given to punish us, but sent as loving acts appointed for our good, he is faithful to all generations. Church, that means that there is not one promise that God shall ever fail to be fully given to God's people. It's grounded upon the character of God. He does not change. And it's proven to us In the person of Christ. That's why Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, Christ. That's why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ as He's anointed us. Here's what Paul is saying and here's what the scriptures are teaching. It ought to be enough for us to hear that the goodness of God and to rest in our provision for us. To hear that he is good and that he does good. That should be wonderfully sufficient enough for us just to say, yes, that is true. But God is even more compassionate. If you can imagine that. In that, he seals his promise with the divine stamp of his son saying, here's my promise, and I want you to know how sure it is as I'm delivering it to you by my own Son so that you might know that this is a yes, this is an amen, because the very same promises that are established in the Godhead are shown to be enduring forever in all generations through Christ ultimately as the display of his love, as the proof of his mercy, as the assurance of his acceptance. How do I know that God is good? Well, he is. And if you're still not certain, look to Christ. How do I know that God will most certainly prove his mercy? Because he says he's merciful. But even further, look to Christ how assured am I that I'm forgiven of sin and that I'm actually welcomed into his presence? Because he says it and look to Christ. It's the certainty of his goodness that ensures really that these gates are thrown wide open and that his courts become places of thanks and praise because the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Most likely later this week, we will gather around tables, massive plates of food, because of a day that we've been given devoted to thanks. Now, don't think for one moment that there is not one person on this entire planet that has no reason. To give thanks. Every single person in this room has reason to give thanks. Just even in the most simple provisions for our health. Whether weak or strong, if there is breath in your lungs, you have a reason to give thanks. If there is blood still moving, maybe albeit slowly, Or too fastly through your body. You still have reason to give thanks. What about for food or provision? For shelter? Whether in abundance or whether you look and say, it's quite lacking right now. We have reason to give thanks. Because all of this is given by God. But... The only one who can give the sort of praise that's described here in Psalm 100 is a Christian. Apart from Christ, the gates of his courts are closed and you're shut out. Apart from Christ, God is most certainly your creator. But you know nothing of his shepherd care of you. And so essentially the best thanks that you can give apart from Christ is a thankfulness for your temporal provisions. But when you come to the end of your life and you breathe your last, your soul will be required of you. And then what? what will you give thanks for then? Friend, hear the triumphant announcement of Scripture and hear this invitation to know this God as He's revealed Himself in Christ. The gates that should be closed to us are flung wide open, not to the deserving, but to the humble and repentant. Not to the sinless, but to sinners who are trusting in Christ. The gates are wide open. The courts are welcomed. So friend, what that means is that this song could be your song today. It's only the song of the Christian, but it could be your song as well. Because Christ has promised that all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. And he calls out to us this morning by his word and by his spirit. And he says, come. And drink, taste and see I'm good. By his own word, he calls us to repent of sin and to believe on him. And Christian, will you give thanks unto his name? If you've wilted under trial, if you've begun to murmur, complain in sinful ignorance? Oh, then confess your sin and repent of your ungratefulness. As you've heard again this morning, that gates are made wide open to repentant and humble sinners. And that His courts are a place of joy and rejoicing because of what He's given. Consider the depth of His grace that's given to us in Christ. Fix your mind upon His goodness and know, give thanks to Him Bless his name. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. And that's why we always can trust in Jesus. That's why we rest in him. That's why God's people give the loudest shouts of joy whenever we think about all that we have to give thanks for. Father, we pray that you would continue to work in us and through us that we might be those who have tasted and seen of all that You are, that You are good and gracious. Our God and Father, we pray that You would continue to form in us hearts of thanks and praise, not merely out of dry duty and obligation alone, but the sort of joyful obligation that says, how can we not give God what He is owed? How can we not give Him praise and thanksgiving my soul overflows with joy father continue to work in us that we might have informed praise that we might have the sort of praise that's fueled not merely just because of our circumstances or what we happen to have in this particular moment or the hope of what we might have temporally but father we pray that you would fuel the sort of praise that's grounded by knowing what you've given to us in christ Lord, we ask and we pray that you would do this because we so desperately need it and that you are such a good and gracious God to provide it. In Christ's name, amen. Church, hear the testimony of Scripture and our invitation to come to the Lord's table. It's Psalm 34, 8.